Welcome to Grow the Pie, the podcast where we ask the tough questions for responsible business. I'm Tom Gosling, Executive Fellow in the Centre for Corporate Governance at London Business School, and I'm joined by Alex Edmonds, Professor of Finance at London Business School and author of Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit. Alex, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. So through this series, we've been looking at the evidence for and against an approach to responsible business that focuses on creating value for shareholders by growing the pie for all stakeholders. We're now going to look at how economics works in practice by looking at how companies and investors can work together to create companies that deliver both purpose and profit. So let's start with companies. I mean, Alex, purpose is really the sort of word of the moment. How do you define it? Thanks, Tom. I think that's the definition is important because purpose is often banded around without people stopping and thinking, well, what does it actually mean? Let me start actually by saying how I would not define it. So often purpose or purposeful is seen as a synonym for altruistic. So a purposeful company is one that serves everybody. So customers, employees, the environment and so on. But that's not what the word purposeful actually means, because if we think semantically, purposeful means focused and targeted. So a purposeful meeting is one with an agenda. If I do something on purpose, then I do that deliberately. So I would define purpose as a company's reason for being, the role that it plays in the world, and how it seeks to serve society. So how do you make a difference? It's like the answer to the question, how is the world a better place? by your company being here. And the important thing is that needs to be focused and targeted. So just like a citizen's purpose would not be to be a doctor and a lawyer and a teacher and entrepreneur, you'd be one of those things. Similarly, a company will focus on the specific social problems that they are best placed to solve. And this links to the first of the the three guides that you have in your book to developing a purpose, which is that a purpose is only meaningful if the converse would also be reasonable. Can you just expand on that? Yes. So when you give a purpose statement, a statement needs to provide information. And what does providing information mean? That means it must change your views. So it must lead to you thinking something differently that you wouldn't have known previously. So if you had a purpose statement saying, we seek to serve customers, colleagues, suppliers, the environment and communities, that sounds great. But that doesn't tell you anything because y- your purpose would never be to mistreat all of them. So that's why I say a purpose is only meaningful if the converse would also be reasonable. Because if the opposite would have been reasonable, then by ruling out a reasonable opposite, you tell people something non-obvious. But because the opposite of that statement, which is to serve nobody, would never be reasonable to begin with, to say that you want to serve everybody, that is not informative. So let me contrast that with something that I I do think would be um, informative. So Southwest Airlines, so they say their purpose is to provide our employees a stable work environment with equal opportunity for learning and personal growth, and they've got further things about employees. And why I think that is meaningful is the fact that they really highlight employees above all else is telling because a purpose statement instead for an airline could highlight customers because it's a customer-focused business, or it could highlight the environment because they have a a significant carbon footprint. So the fact that they've chosen to highlight employees is meaningful because the converse of instead highlighting the environment or customers 
would also be reasonable. So what they stand for is something which I wouldn't have known had I not read the purpose statement, so I learned by reading it. Okay, so I mean, a purpose is kind of meaningless if it doesn't actually guide choices about where the company focuses effort and resources, and we'll maybe come back to that when we talk about the link between purpose and strategy. There's also a guide that you have that links back to the principles that we discussed in previous episodes around comparative advantage, um, materiality, and, and multiplication, which you used as guides to action within pie-growing businesses. And you talk about the why of the company being based on the principle of comparative advantage and the who on the principle of materiality. What's your thinking behind that? Yeah, so uh, it's well known, and many other people before me have argued that purpose involves a why, which is why you exist. And then how do you define that? Well, the principle of comparative advantage highlights what you are uniquely good at. So if we think of another example, Costco's why statement is we provide quality goods and services at the lowest possible prices. So first, that is meaningful because the opposite would also be reasonable. So by saying quality goods at the lowest possible prices, price is what trumps quality, it could have instead said, we're going to provide affordable goods at the highest possible quality, but they didn't. They've highlighted cost. And why? Because their comparative advantage is indeed really great efficiency, and that's what helps keep costs down. But the more unique part of how I'm defining purposes is the who. So many purpose statements focus on on the why, but not so much the who. And what I mean by the who is which stakeholders you particularly aspire to serve. And I think why other purpose definitions don't think about the who so much is that the who is a bit uncomfortable. Because if you highlight a particular stakeholder, that automatically means they're first among equals and more important than other stakeholders. But I do think the trade-offs that a company makes are going to be uncomfortable in in real life. So if you are a company that is prioritizing your employees over other stakeholders, it may well be, let's say your professional services company, that you might not get the employees to work over the weekend, even if the client demands it and and so forth. And because we do face those trade-offs, I think a purpose statement needs to have a who which of the stakeholders who are going to dominate a trade-off. And then why I say, well, the principle of materiality is critical, is what does materiality mean? Out of all the stakeholders, there are some who are going to be more critical for your business's long-term success than others. And for Southwest, well, they've argued that actually, even though, yeah, they're customer-facing, really what is going to drive their long-term success is, is employees. And so they have highlighted them in their purpose statement. I think this discussion is is so important because, as you said earlier on in this discussion, purpose at times can almost be you know defined as being nice to people, being worthy, and it almost can seem as a sort of medieval indulgence in expiation of sins that are carried out elsewhere in the business. But actually, a purpose statement has to be integrated with how the business makes money in order for it to be enduring. And if it isn't, then it will be called out as inauthentic at some point in the future. So so I think this is a really helpful guide. But possibly my favourite of your three guides is the third one, where where you talk about a purpose being both deliberate and emergent. And I I think this is a really insightful statement, but could you just expand on it for the listeners? 
Yeah, so often people think purpose is deliberate. And so what that means is it's something that the management team decides in the C-suite and then just imposes on the company and then everybody else in the company follows. And that's the idea of deliberate purpose. But emergent purpose, and this is the idea that we can engage employees in the formation of purpose, and, and maybe not just employees, but also external stakeholders. And why might we want to do this is that the C-suite doesn't have a monopoly on, on the ideas. It may well be that employees and external stakeholders understand what the purpose should be. And if we involve them in the formation of purpose, they're much more likely to embed it and live it rather than view this as something imposed um, by the top. So let me give you an example of, of that. And let me actually give you an example of when external stakeholders had a say, because you might think it's obvious that you're going to consult employees, but would you consult other people? Well, the NHS, National Health Service of the UK, for them, the purpose is really important because it's actually enshrined in the constitution. And so initially, when the NHS came up with a purpose, they have the top management and also internal employees, such as doctors and nurses, think about it. And they define their purpose statement as being about helping people stay healthy and recover from illnesses. And, and that seems to make sense of your health service. But then when they externally tested it with, say, public health authorities and trade unions and citizen representatives, they highlighted the importance of a decent death when the time came. And that was really interesting because for a service which was so focused on wellness and where a lot of the KPIs might be recovery from illnesses, they might have missed the importance of, of, of palliative care. And so that was something that they were able to add by having this external consultation. And then more than that, given that these external stakeholders were engaged and involved in the formation of purpose, they are really committed to holding the NHS accountable. So when they measure how well the NHS is doing, they're not just going to look at uh, the wellness statistics, but also to the extent possible, uh, to the extent they can measure it, this data on palliative care. Yeah, so it's interesting and an example related to employees. I mean, when at PwC we developed our purpose, that took a couple of years of consultation with our 150,000 employees worldwide. And the thinking behind that was that it's very difficult for a few people sitting in a boardroom to decide what the purpose of the organisation is and, and then to sort of tell people what their purpose is. You almost have to find out what the purpose of the organisation actually is and then go with the grain of that. So I think, you know, to be enduring this whole question of emergent purpose as well as deliberate purpose is, is absolutely critical. And when it comes to then embedding purpose, which is actually sort of very hard to do, I have to say my experience is that companies have to go way beyond what they think they have to do in order to really embed purpose on a consistent basis. There's lots in the book on this, but you're picking on a, on, on a couple of them. How do you see the link between purpose and, and, and strategy? So I'd say that they're very closely linked in that purpose is your objective and strategy is, is how you want to get to that objective, so how to get there. And so if you are to have a purpose statement, you need to make sure that your actions are in accordance with it. Otherwise, it's something which is meaningless. And that might mean that purpose might lead to you taking strategic decisions, which would make no sense if you didn't have a purpose. So even if you're focused on long-term shareholder value, with the emphasis on long term, there are certain decisions that you might take as a responsible business where it's hard to forecast the long term benefits. So if without the purpose, you wouldn't have taken them. For example, Patagonia 
the clothing company in 2011 on Black Friday, which is the biggest shopping day in America. They placed a full page advert in the New York Times saying, don't buy our jacket. <laughs> don't, don't buy. So why do they say that? Well, they said, well, actually, one of the, the challenges with, with our industry and our impact on society is fast fashion or is dumping of worn clothes. So they launched this common threads initiative, which encouraged customers to repair and reuse uh, their clothes rather than buy new ones. And actually what happened was that sales rose 30% over the next year. Now, it's impossible to obviously show causality from this, but the fact that sales still rose despite this initiative being launched and also being successful, they repaired 30,000 items over the next 18 months. This is not at the expense of profitability, even though I'm sure when Patagonia launched this thread, this idea, they didn't rub their hands together and think, oh, if we do this, we're going to improve our public image and more people are going to buy our clothes. I think it was something which was truly driven by purpose. And their statement was, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. And again, that's a statement where the converse could be reasonable. You could say instead, our purpose here is to provide our customers with the best affordable and durable clothing. But they didn't say that. It was the planet, which was even more important than customers to them. So, Alex, one of the other dimensions that you look at in the embedding of purpose is the importance of treating stakeholders as partners. And and I think that is a distinctive part of the pie economics philosophy, that it's a pie that's shared by all. But what does it mean to treat stakeholders as partners? And and perhaps you you give a great example around employees in your book, and perhaps you could just talk about that. Certainly. So the traditional approach to stakeholders, if you were practicing enlightened shareholder value, is to view stakeholders as a means to an end. So you invest in stakeholders if you can calculate a long-term profit impact of doing so. So you invest in employees because they're going to be more productive and more efficient, or you provide great customer service because you think customers are going to buy more products in the future or give you great ratings. But the whole idea of, of thinking of stakeholders as partners is to think about them intrinsically. So you invest in them even if you don't foresee a long-term benefit. So one example of this is going back to employees and why focus on employees, even though they're not the only stakeholder, that's the uh, stakeholder that my data on the best companies to work for was on. Let's go back to the concept of training. So there's a very famous economic model by Gary Becker, which looks at two different types of training. One of them is generalized training, which is applicable everywhere. So let's say you're teaching employees how to become better negotiators or better public speakers. And the other is firm-specific training. And that's a value only within the firm, such as how to use their specialized databases. And what Gary Becker said is that a company should only invest in firm-specific training. Because if you invest in general training, right, the employee becomes more skilled, and then she can command a higher salary elsewhere. So you're going to have to pay her the full extent to which her productivity is increased to stop her from leaving. And therefore, you don't recoup any benefit for your your training. So if you think about an instrumental approach to training, you're not going to be engaging in any general um, skills development, which is problematic because most skills nowadays have more uh, a general feel. So if you view stakeholders and par- as partners, you're going to invest in them without 
a calculation as to whether the training is general or specific, you're just going to be investing in them as, as human beings and you're just concerned with their long-term personal development. This is very relevant now, isn't it? Because one of the things that the pandemic is going to trigger is significant reallocation of um, resources in the economy and uh, significant industry change. And employees will be much better able to cope with that change if they have good general skills. And I, I think that you know, a common kind of view is that, well, the company should just keep the employee employed, and, and that's fine up to a point, but economic forces will overwhelm that uh, ultimately, and it's much better for the employee if they've got transferable skills that make it easier for them to find another job than it is to sort of keep them in a moribund um, industry. That's exactly right. And uh, one book that you um, brought to my attention, Tom, is, is Janesville, where the author Amy Goldstein, she studies the uh, closure of General Motors factory in Janesville in Wisconsin. And so when that happened, there was like chronic unemployment, which depressed the entire town. Why was that? It was because GM had only focused on teaching its employees specialised skills, so how to work on, on the factory, nothing general, such as even how to use a computer. So even though the government tried to engage in retraining, those efforts were largely unsuccessful. So even if there were technical colleges offering some skills courses, if the employees didn't know how to use a computer, it was very difficult to, to do that. And so what this does is it shifts some of the responsibility to companies. So we've highlighted there's many things that governments should indeed be doing. However, there are certain things that companies might have a comparative advantage in doing, which is because they know their employees really well, they will know, well, what are the general skills which they are most in need of, of development, and they can provide a general skills training, which uh, helps that so that not only will they hopefully become more effective within the uh, current company, but also if they end up having to leave the company, they will find a job elsewhere. And, and if we sort of think about this on a more selfish basis, it might mean that if a company faces difficulty, such as the pandemic, it's easier to take tough decisions, such as to reallocate out employees outside the firm without feeling guilty that you're, you're making people unemployed, if indeed you've given them the skills so that they're employable elsewhere. Otherwise, as you say, you might have to keep the employees within the company to avoid a media backlash. Uh, that's costly. It also doesn't provide the employees with, with dignity or meaningful work if the sector that they're employed in has significantly shrunk and there's not meaningful tasks for them to do. I'm going to come on to investors now, and, and then we'll kind of bring the two together, corporates and in, investors. And in the last episode, we talked a lot about the evidence that actually investors play a bigger role in, in growing the pie than is commonly thought. But what do you think the key things an investor needs to think about when assessing their stewardship responsibilities to the companies that they invest in? I think the first step is to understand what their stewardship strategy should be. So we've talked about purpose when, we, when it comes to companies and how purpose can be different between different companies and how that's often a differentiating factor. Within investors, I think purposes tend to be a bit more homogenous. So I think any investor, your purpose should be to generate long-term returns for your end investors, which are, which are clients. But I think it's the stewardship strategy, which is the way in which you achieve your purpose, which will be differentiated. So there will be some investors who, uh, for whom stock picking 
which we called monitoring last time, is their comparative advantage. So they might not really engage within a company, but they're really good at understanding a company's long-term prospects and these intangible assets, which might not be priced by the market. But the common view is that the best way to engage is to vote against management, because that you're really holding companies to account. But actually, there might be other investors who, rather than using voting, they instead are willing to engage with companies and get them to make a proposal that they're willing to vote for. So voting, yes, that's a tool, but that's only one tool of a general arsenal. Similarly, there might be um, some people who view engagement as meeting lots of companies a lot of the time. But there might be others who think, well, actually, we're going to have a few targeted meetings with companies only when there is a purpose to it. If we know what the objective of the meeting is and there is an end game in terms of what does success look like for having successful meeting. So what this suggests is that an investor should define what they think their stewardship policy is and then understand, well, how are they going to report on whether that policy has actually been implemented? So, yeah, and this um, emphasises, doesn't it, the importance of, of real stewardship as opposed to sort of superficial stewardship, because actually a lot of the public discourse, I mean, particularly amongst sort of journalists and policymakers, does focus on voting and, and engaging with management. And actually, as we discussed last time, monitoring and, and, and activism. There are lots of ways of undertaking effective stewardship that, that involve neither of those things. In fact, in extremists, do you think a, a, an investor could be a good steward without voting at all? I think it's certainly possible. So I think with voting, there is the danger of if you don't have in-house voting expertise, you might just outsource that to a proxy agency. And there's concerns that proxy agencies, they might have one-size-fits-all methodologies. So it might actually be better not to vote than to vote in an uninformed way. But at the moment, if you're an investor who doesn't vote, it's seen as bad stewardship because you're not using an asset at your disposal, which is your vote. There would only be, I think, a small subset of investors where I think it's legitimate not to vote at all. But I think that subset is not zero. If indeed you're not informed about a particular topic, I think it's better not to use your asset of the vote rather than use it um, incorrectly. And you just mentioned proxy advisors there. So perhaps we'll, we'll come on to that. So I was going to talk about it a little bit later. But I mean, they do get a tough rap. And Certainly uh, in the US, there seems to be quite a move to restrict the influence of proxy advisors. Well, what does the evidence say about how much impact they have? Yeah, so what is a proxy advisor to begin with? So these are agencies that advise companies, so advise investors on how to vote on a particular situation, such as whether to vote for or against a pay package, in a similar way to an equity analyst will advise investors, but on a trading decision rather than a voting decision. And so what is their influence? So there was a study in the US which used causality, the same regression discontinuity approach we've described previously, so I'm not going to repeat that, but they found that a negative recommendation from ISS, the leading um, proxy advisor, leads to a decline in voting support by 25%. So what it means is that a um, proxy advisor is more important, well, significantly more important than even your largest shareholder, because I know you lose 25%. And then similarly, a, a study that you led with PwC in the UK found that the effect was, I believe, around 15%, so slightly less, but still more important than your largest investor. And so given that, I, I think it is indeed correct to scrutinise the influence that proxy advisors have and make sure that they have the correct influence. 
let me again stand in their corner. Why do we have this industry to begin with? It's that evaluating how to vote in a particular case, this involves a lot of expertise. So many investors might have their expertise being in stock picking rather than voting. So it's useful to have this external resource. But where might there be problems? Well, sometimes uh, the proxy advisor could, just like any advisor, get it wrong. And why might they get it wrong is that they have to provide lots of recommendations on, on every company around the same time. So in the annual general meeting season, which is around April, they need to provide recommendations on any company, which is having a vote on directors or on pay. And so what that means is that they have to apply general one-size-fits-all methodologies that they can use for all of the thousands of companies they're providing advice on. And that might mean that in particular strategic contexts, their general model might not actually be applicable. And then themselves, some of their methodologies might not be subject to external scrutiny. So ISS uses a pay-for-performance model, which makes the mistake we discussed in an earlier episode, where they don't consider the incentives provided by a CEO's existing equity holdings. They only look at the incentives provided by changes in pay from year to year, not the revaluation of your existing stock. So then what does that mean? Because I I think people like to portray proxy advisors as always the enemy, but I do think some investors need to take responsibility and realize what proxy advisors do is they provide advice, but they shouldn't be seen as an outsourcing service that you just choose to vote according to how they tell you. Like it'd be absurd for an investor to buy or sell based on what a particular equity analyst happens to say, right, you read the rationale, you take this into account, but it wouldn't be the only input. And so I think that would also be the case for an investor is, yeah, you pay attention to what, what they say, but you don't automatically follow it. You can, it could be used as a red flag. So let's say you're an index fund and you have to cover thousands of companies. You might not be able to analyze the vote for every single company. You just don't have the resources, but maybe only in the cases in which ISS or Glasslibus recommends a vote against, will you scrutinize those cases particularly carefully? It may well be you end up following their against recommendation, but it might be that you think that in this case, their general model doesn't apply. We do see a reason for actually supporting this policy, even though the proxy advisor is negative. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say, I do, I do think that sometimes corporates sort of gang up on proxy agencies because they just don't like people disagreeing with what they're doing at times. And and I think the if there is an issue, it much more of it needs to be put at the door of how investors are using proxy advisors and what they're prepared to pay for proxy advisors, maybe as much as the the, the proxy advisors them, themselves. But let's move on to the question of embedding stewardship and, and you identify you know, three things that you believe are particularly crucial to embedding stewardship, being incentives, effective monitoring, and, and effective engagement. So let, let's just start off with incentives, um, because obviously we had a whole session on that in relation to corporates, but equally it's important in asset managers too, isn't it? That's right. I, I see this. there's a big parallel between incentives in corporates and incentives in asset managers. So what we suggested for um, companies is that a CEO be given a large equity stake in her firm, and that equity stake you can't sell for many years. You might even have to hold it beyond your retirement. And I think that should be the case as well for incentivizing fund managers. 
is to give them a share of of the fund. And so their pay is based on the long-term fund performance. Now, while that might seem obvious, in a number of cases, investors have told me that they're paid according to short-term fund flows or assets under management. And if that's the case, you will focus on short-term performance because you want to attract positive flows. And there is actually evidence, isn't there, that on holdings in own funds being linked with superior performance. In fact, I think one of your colleagues at, at LBS was involved in that. Yeah, that's correct. So my colleague Henri Savaz and two co-authors found that when a manager owns 1% more of his fund, risk-adjusted performance rises by 3%. So they've got incentives to grow the pie and, and therefore investors also benefit. And what, in your mind then, just moving on to effective monitoring, what constitutes effective monitoring? Yeah, so this is where I think one of the big growth areas has been in responsible investment. So remember what run monitoring is, that's evaluating whether a stock is responsible or not. Now, historically, this was on the basis of screening. Say you define certain observable objective criteria, and if you don't tick the box, or if you tick the wrong box, you're out. So if you are in a controversial industry, let's say alcohol or oil and gas, you can't be invested in, or if your pay ratio is too high or your board diversity is too low, you're also not in. So the problem with that is that it's very um, narrow. So it might be that your board diversity is not high, but the cognitive diversity is really high, and there's a huge commitment to diversity throughout the organization, and maybe you're doing loads of other things. So it's just focusing on ticking one particular box, and so it's too narrow. It could even be manipulated. You could be a company who doesn't care about diversity, but you put a minority on the board just to to box tick. So what we've seen is a movement from um, screening to integration. And so what integration means is that you're considering social factors alongside financial factors when making an investment decision. So previously, social factors like what industry you're in or what your board diversity was, that was only a foot in the door. And once you were part of the admissible universe, the investor would choose among you based on financial criteria. Here, they will look at not only your financial performance and management quality, but also how you're treating your workers and your relationship with regulators and and, and so on. And importantly, they're going to look at that from a huge variety of data sources. So one source of data is a company's own report, and companies are increasingly reporting on their sustainability, not just their financials. One concern of that is that it might not be comparable. Another source is ESG ratings. So here we have agencies such as MSCI or Vigero Iris who are providing ratings on the sustainability of companies, just like S&P and Moody's do for uh, credit ratings. But here there is also a problem in that there's quite a lot of disparity between the ratings provided by different rating agencies. And that's not too surprising because there is some value judgment according to what counts as ethical or sustainable. For example, if you spend a lot of effort lobbying, is that unfairly trying to influence government policy? Or is this fairly providing some input, just like an investor might provide input to stewardship codes? So this means that I think the final source of information, which I think one of the most important, is just the boots on the ground approach of talking to management. So one analogy I often use is that nowadays, if somebody applies for a job, you can use a lot of great data. You can get some artificial intelligence to scrape people's social media profiles, but that will never replace 
the interview because the interview is when you can put all of that data into context and to talk to management and, and think about, okay, your employee turnover, that's gone up. But then management might say, well, actually, the reason for this is uh, we've just other employees, just other companies just recognize we, we're really great at training our, our, our staff. And so they're poaching our staff after they've come to us for a couple of years because they see us being well trained. We're going to try to address that. But that's quite different from if employees are leaving because they feel mistreated or they feel that they can't advance. And what I try to do in the book is to develop some questions to frame those discussions so that when investors talk to management, they're able to ask potentially tough questions to try to discern which companies are truly purpose-led from those which are focused on just uh, long-term shelter value. So some examples might be, well, how do you manage trade-offs between different stakeholders? We're going to have to prioritize one or the other. How do you decide which investments and stakeholders to turn down? So there might be certain things which would be great from a PR perspective, but the commercial reality outweighs the the social desirability. Or another thing will be, can you give examples of excellence in areas that are not directly linked to long-term shelter value? So we've emphasized earlier that excellence and innovation are two of the big ways in which a company grows the pie. Now, you might think that any company should strive to be excellent and innovative. But what this is trying to highlight is that a pie growing company will be excellent and innovative, even in areas where it's not clear that they'll be able to monetize that even in the long term. Thanks for that, Alex. And, you know, I mean, I think this shows that there's really a need for investors to think through how stewardship supports their purpose, and then in a very authentic way, uh, adjust the way they do business, the whole way they operate to reflect that. And I'd like to just bring this discussion to, to a close on a final topic, which is how we can bring investors and companies together around the issue of purpose. And you pose an interesting idea in your book of a say on purpose. And what, how would that work? And, and why do you think it's a good idea? So sound papers is actually an idea that I have to credit you uh, for, Tom, because it's you who, who brought this idea to me. And so this is the concept that we want to get investors to weigh in on a company's purpose. So they have a buy-in in terms of what the trade-offs this implies are, and they can also monitor the extent to which the purpose is being put into practice. And the analogy here is to say on pay. So investors in many countries currently are able to weigh in on a company's pay policy. There's two aspects of that. There's the pay policy going forwards, and also looking historically, has that policy been correctly implemented? And why do we have a say on pay? It's because regulators think that pay is a particularly important issue on which we need to have investor oversight, even though investors already have oversight of directors and could theoretically vote out directors if the CEO is mispaid. We think, well, pay is so important, let's give them a particular extra vote. But if that is true, well, purpose is, we'd argue, even more important than pay. Right? So purpose is why a company exists. And uh, one of the big problems with purpose is people will say, well, there's a lot of subjectivity here. Companies can't be held to account because unlike shareholder value, purpose is hard to measure. Well, how do we know? Are we going to look at how they treat their employees? Or is it going to be in the environment that matters? Or is it customers? But this is a way of having the very accountability that many opponents of purpose argue is the real barrier to putting this into practice. So what would this involve? Well, a company will release their purpose statement. 
And then investors would have an advisory vote as to whether they agree with this. And hopefully the purpose statement should be one which makes the trade-offs clear. And so only then will it be a meaningful statement about which there could be a meaningful vote. And then having voted on this, right, the investors then know what to hold the company to account for going forwards. And then when they have the other vote, which is, has it actually been put into practice, they will need to, to scrutinize the company on that. And I think there's numerous benefits for this, because what matters is not so much the vote, do you vote for or vote against, but the entire process that needs to be undergone in order to come to the vote. Because in order for the investor to first vote on the policy, they need to understand the policy. And in order for the investor to vote according to implementation of the policy, they need to scrutinise not financial numbers, but measures of employee well-being or patents generated or customer satisfaction. And this just broadens the discussion and the dialogue between investors and companies to something much as far richer than just short-term financial factors. I think that this could also help sort of broaden the effect that we discussed earlier in the series when we were talking about Unilever's defense of, of the takeover bid from Kraft Heinz and where the knowledge that investors had of their own purpose was a key part of why that bid was so successfully defended. And I, and I think that it might embolden boards who believe that a certain action, even if it sort of impinges on short-term profits, is in the interest of the long-term purpose of the company. They might be emboldened to, to take more of those sorts of actions. And, and actually, do you see a connection here with the debate that you've been very actively involved in recently around the 50th um, anniversary of Friedman's famous paper? Do you see a link here to resolving the legitimacy of, of, of stakeholder capitalism in some way? Yeah, absolutely. So there have been um, attempts to move away from the idea that companies should be only accountable for shareholder value. For example, there's the business roundtable statement claiming that those companies were um, pursuing stakeholder interests rather than just shareholder interests. But what was interesting was that only 2% of those companies actually ran it past the board. And the board is elected by shareholders. So what that suggested is they didn't have shareholder buy-in for that. And that's why it was not surprising that the statement they had was a meaningless statement. If you were to use what we discussed right at the start, there was no trade-off implied by it. The opposite of their statement would be unreasonable. Their statement was to serve every stakeholder, but you would never be a company which would serve no stakeholders. So if instead you had a purpose statement that was ratified by shareholders, then if you were to pursue that purpose statement, that would be fully consistent with shareholder interests. So this gets around the myth that shareholder primacy means that companies will completely ignore other stakeholders, because it may well be that a company's shareholders do care about something more than just even long-term shareholder value. That's not just hypothetical. This is why Unilever turned down this juicy takeover bid from Kraft. And if indeed investors have voted and said, oh, we actually care not only about long-term shareholder returns, but you making sure that you reduce your carbon footprint, even if this costs us something in terms of dividends or capital gains, then this gives a, a, a big green light to boards making difficult trade-offs where there will indeed be cost to shareholders of growing the pie for society. Well, thanks, Alex. Uh, again, we've covered a lot of ground here and uh, barely been able to do justice with the with the richness that's in the book. So I would like to remind listeners that you can buy Alex's book and, and access a whole load of great related resources at growthepie.net. 
And in the next episode, we're going to broaden our perspectives from companies and investors to look at the implications of Pikeonomics for other stakeholder groups in society. So do subscribe to make sure you don't miss this and other episodes in the series. Thank you for listening.